Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. <clears throat> Jesus went through the, all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. He called his disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And then to verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet receives a prophet's reward, and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Thanks, Bianca. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask uh, as we uh, think about uh, those verses that Bianca just read for us, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight, Lord, keep us from error, 
Lord, help uh, give us clarity uh, to understand what you're saying to us. Uh, give us uh, clarity to understand what you're saying about your church and about your people and about your disciples. Lord, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts to you and to your greatness, to the wonder of Jesus Christ, uh, and Lord, that you would increase our love for him. We ask it for his namesake. Amen. Well, it's been a, uh, an interesting week, uh, actually. Uh, at the beginning of the week, I uh, sort of worked out what uh, the sermon was going to be on, was going to be on this passage. Uh, and then I also sat down to write uh, a discussion paper for our session meeting tomorrow night uh, on church planting. Uh, and I did that, and then as I started to think more about this passage, I realised that there was so much overlap, really, between uh, what uh, we're trying to work through as a church, I think, in terms of reaching the community, uh, and what Matthew 10 was saying. Uh, as I was struggling with this passage, uh, I also was reading a book uh, and I got to a point uh, thinking about the passage where I thought, I, I, I don't know what is, what, what's going on here. And uh, so I'll just go back to that book. I went back to the book and the very next chapter was on these particular verses. Uh, and then I came to church this morning and Peter, uh, in, the, in the prayer meeting for the community, Peter says, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10. Uh, and, and said, this is maybe the most important chapter for us to think about uh, as a church. Uh, you know, everybody in the church should memorise this chapter, everyone should, should think about it, should know what's going on in this chapter. And I think that's right. I think in many ways it's a manifesto uh, of how uh, we function as God's people, uh, as God's church, seeking to reach out uh, to the community around us. How do we go about doing that? Uh, it's not a new question, but it seems to me that it's often a very puzzling question uh, and something that, even though we've been thinking about it for a long time, uh, we still uh, need to think about some more uh, because we often find ourselves so very, very confused. Well, uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at the identity of Jesus as we've gone through Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. We've looked at the nature of biblical faith. Uh, we've seen that biblical faith understands that Jesus is the Son of God uh, and we've seen that true biblical faith responds to Jesus, uh, as Elizabeth said, by following him, uh, by being his disciple. Last week uh, we also saw that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins uh, and we saw that that was good news because his mission was to sinners. He came for the specific purpose uh, of rescuing sinners like you and me. And this morning we're moving uh, to chapter 10. We're skipping over uh, the last few verses of chapter 9 because uh, that covers a lot of that same stuff that we've looked at in the last three weeks. But this morning, as I said before, is really this manifesto uh, of mission work, uh, of the church's mission. How are we to go about that? This is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that the, uh, the disciples are sent out on mission and so in that sense it gives us a really great way in. Well, chapter 9 uh, ends with that summary statement uh, in verse 35 of Jesus' ministry, uh, Matthew says, Jesus went through all the world, I uh, saw through all the towns and villages, uh, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Uh, it turns out that in the last two chapters, Matthew has only given a snapshot of Jesus' broader ministry. 
Uh, actually, it turns out Jesus has been relentless in going all over the place, in healing uh, the sick, uh, healing every kind of disease. We only read of three or four or five or six uh, little episodes, but actually Jesus has been doing so much more than that. Uh, he's been relentless also, not just in healing, but also in preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and about himself as God's king. But even though Jesus has given himself to this relentless task, uh, he, he looks out, he surveys the crowds and he realises that the task is so much uh, larger than he himself uh, is able to do in his uh, bodily form. Uh, Jesus looks at the crowd and we read uh, that Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion. It says, uh, why was that? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How were they harassed and helpless? They were harassed in the sense that they lacked guidance. They lacked leadership. They were aimless. They were led uh, this way and that way. It would be fair to say, I think, that, uh, that every human being in uh, our world has a sense of salvation. That is, they, they have this sense of deliverance. There's a sense that things aren't right. There's a sense that they ought to be well, not sick. And that's why there's so many health food stores all over the place. That's why there's so many different kinds of medical practitioners because we want to be well, don't we? Not sick. There's a sense that we ought to be full of joy, not full of sadness. Everybody has this kind of sense that things aren't right and are, are, are looking for ways uh, to, to be delivered. The great tragedy is when, is when we put our hope in the wrong thing or even worse, when we're sold a lie about where to look for that deliverance. Great lies are being sold to people every day, aren't they? Uh, sleep with whoever you want, uh, whenever you want, and that will be the most satisfying thing uh, for you. That will make you happy. Uh, follow your dreams. Pamper yourself. Uh, give yourself exactly what you always wanted. That will make you happy. Look deep inside yourself. Find your unmet wants uh, and desires and satisfy them. They're the, the messages that we get, uh, aren't they? That's the message behind uh, as Eric mentioned before, that's the message behind the same-sex marriage debate. Make, you know, look inside yourself, find out what kind of person you are, follow your heart, uh, follow where you want to go. I read uh, the most tragic uh, and devastating story uh, in the paper the other day. It was a story uh, of a young boy who was being encouraged to embrace his inner sexual identity. Uh, he felt like a girl but he was genetically and physically a boy. And so he was being told, and we as the readers of the newspaper article were being told, uh, that if there was a mistake in his child's life, the mistake must be with the physics and the genetics and not with his heart or his mind. And the result was that his parents, even the parents of this young child, uh, I don't think he was more than 12 or 13, everyone was telling him, well, follow... Uh, your heart, uh, you know, do, do what you want to do. Identify, and not as, not as what God's made you, but identify 
as a woman, as a, as a girl. I think that's one of the saddest things I've ever read. You know, you could, you could cry. Uh, the poor child, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody saying, this is, here's the Messiah, you know. This will save you. Do this. But it's a terrible, terrible lie. Jesus looked out over the world and we can look out over the world without much trouble and see the lack of that God-given guidance of a true Messiah. What's Jesus' response to seeing that? Well, verse 37, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. What do we need to do? How do we respond to seeing this this misery and this confusion in our world? How do we respond? The first thing Jesus says that we need to do is to pray. To pray for gospel workers. To pray that God would raise up evangelists. The term worker uh, or fellow worker in the rest of the New Testament becomes almost a technical term for people who have been given by the church to gospel ministry. People like Paul and Timothy uh, and that famous evangelistic couple uh, Priscilla and Aquila. I really love Priscilla and Aquila this week. I've just fallen in love with Priscilla and Aquila. Just, I love the thought of this couple just going around preaching the gospel. I just think it's uh, this amazing uh, picture. What we need, Jesus is saying, is, is gospel workers. We need evangelists, we need missionaries, not just to South Sudan. We've done that great. That's a fantastic thing to send out workers to other parts of the world. But we need them to our own country, to our own community, to the places where we are as well. And we need to pray that God would raise them up. All of us as Christians are called to live with the mission mindset. We're called to share the gospel as we heard before. We're called to live in a way which demonstrates the gospel uh, and we're called to take the opportunities that God gives us to speak about Jesus. But we also need, the Bible tells us, we also need gospel workers. We're not all gospel workers like Paul was or, or like Priscilla and Aquila were, but we are all called to pray. John Dixon, uh, in his great book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, Promoting the Gospel with More Than Our Lips, it used to be just called Promoting the Gospel, he writes, before Jesus calls and sends out the 12 disciples, he asks all disciples to get involved in the harvest in a more basic way. That is by praying. The vital link between the masses who hear the gospel and the workers who are sent out to preach the gospel, the link between those is the whole company of disciples praying for the work of the gospel. There are two great things that we need to pray for in mission. One is that God would work in the hearts of people, that he would stir people to faith. But the other thing, and maybe the more fundamental thing, is that God would raise up workers that we can send out into the harvest. So we've seen Jesus' compassion, uh, which leads to telling his disciples to pray for gospel workers. The next thing which this passage 
shows us is the disciples' commission. Having been overwhelmed with compassion for the hopeless crowds and having commanded the disciples to pray, Jesus responds by commissioning the disciples to carry on a ministry of their own in the shape of Jesus' own ministry. So in 10 verse 1 we read, He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Then we get that list of the twelve disciples uh, and in verse 5 Matthew tells us, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. One of the most uh, interesting and useful questions to ask is, what does the mission of the disciples tell us about mission today? What What does what Jesus is doing tell us about what we're supposed to do ourselves today? It turns out that uh, answering that question is not as straightforward as you might first think. And that's because there are several uh, unique things, several things which are particular uh, to Jesus, uh, to, the, to the mission which Jesus sent his disciples on. Uh, you see that when you compare the Great Commission uh, at the end of Matthew's Gospel with uh, what Jesus is doing here. So, for instance, here Jesus sends the disciples only to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples are told specifically not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. But in the Great Commission, Jesus tells the disciples to go to all nations. Moreover, a significant part of the disciples' ministry here is to do great miracles, to drive out demons, to heal every disease, Uh, and every sickness. Yet, when you read the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that's not really mentioned. The focus there is not on uh, that so much as making disciples, baptising them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Jesus. And lastly here, the message about Jesus is still something of a secret. Uh, The message that disciples preach is somewhat oblique, the kingdom of heaven is near. But in the Great Commission, the, much, the message is much clearer. Uh, the kingdom has, has been seen to be ushered in through the work of Jesus by his crowning on the cross. The complicating factor, uh, as many people have pointed out, is that the Gospels, in a way, really belong to the Old Testament. Now, that's a bit of a crazy thing to say because they're in the New Testament, but in, in a way they still belong to the Old Testament because the work of Jesus hasn't uh, reached its climax. The the new era which Jesus is ushering in hasn't happened until his death and resurrection. The identity of Jesus hasn't been fully revealed until his death and resurrection. The place of the Gentiles and Israel in relation to each other hasn't been fully worked out until Jesus' death and resurrection. So in some sense, the mission of the disciples here in Matthew 10 is limited by that reality of the outworking and the time and the place in salvation history. So what then does the disciples' mission tell us 
about our mission uh, or the mission of gospel workers today. Well, the second half of the chapter really goes into that, into the long-term nature of the mission of Jesus' disciples today. It looks beyond the work that the disciples, the 12 disciples, were to do themselves in their, uh, in their first mission. And we're not going to look at that today, unfortunately. We're going to look at that next week. But I think there are still things that we can, we can kind of glean uh, from this first mission of the disciples. And I think maybe the most significant one to focus on is what Jesus says in verse 8. What is to be the overriding tone of their ministry? Verse 8, freely you have received, Jesus says, freely give. Now when I read that, when I read freely, I think that means give without holding back. Is that what, when you read that, is that what you think? That's what I think it means, give without holding back. You know, if there's an opportunity, take it. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying. It literally means, uh, read something like this. As a gift you have received, as a gift give. You see, we've received salvation as a gift from God, we ought to give it as a gift as well. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you've received things from me as a gift. As you go on this mission and on this ministry, you ought to give it as a gift as well. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for pay. Don't do it to the people who deserve it. Give it as a gift. What ought to be the defining mark of Christian ministry? It is that it is a gift. Fundamental to the idea is that just as we've received salvation from God, we ought to give it as well. As you go about your ministry, as you go about sharing the gospel, showing the love of Christ to people around you, what ought to be the defining mark of your life? It ought to be that just as you've received salvation as a gift, so you offer that same salvation to others as a gift without them having to deserve it and without them having to earn it. One of uh, life's simple pleasures is, isn't it, to give gifts. I love giving gifts. I hate birthdays because you have to give a gift, but I love walking through the shops and uh, I'm a really utilitarian person so I love to give gifts that are useful. Uh, so I love to walk through the shops and you see something, you know, you see like this whiz-bang apple peeler or something like that and you go, I think I'll give that to you know, to Bob, or, you know, if Bob likes apple peelers or whatever. I, you know, don't you love that to to see something and think, wouldn't that be great just to give it to to someone? And there's so much joy, isn't there, in just giving a gift, giving a useful gift. Well, <laughs> we've all had we've all had the unuseful gift, actually. I suddenly realised the other day that I had to buy, I told you a few weeks ago, I had to buy a whole lot of new hankies because my grandmother always used to give me hankies for my birthday and I used to think, what a waste of time. You know, I already have lots of hankies. But now they're really coming into their own you know, because all, they're all wearing out. But, well, and now I have to buy my own because they're all so, so far gone. But anyway, so even useless gifts maybe can be useful. But how useful, uh, you know, how great is it to give a useful gift and what gift is more useful than to give someone the gift of the love of Christ 
and the message of the gospel. We love to give gifts to people. I think we ought to love also to give the gospel to people as a gift that we've received and we can give on to them as well. So we've encountered uh, in this passage Jesus' compassion and the disciples' commission and the next thing that we discover is the disciples' preparation. Before the disciples go out, Jesus also gives them this instruction in verse 9. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. How are they to survive uh, if they do this? Well, verse 11 tells us, whatever town or village you enter, search for someone, some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. So the idea is then that what the disciples were supposed to do is to not take anything with them but to rely on the generosity of the people in the towns that they visited, to rely on the fact that when they went there that there would likely be someone who would welcome them uh, and and provide for them while they were there. The underlying principle, says Jesus, is that the worker is worth his keep. This uh, instruction from Jesus is actually another example of something that was unique to this particular missionary endeavour. What's interesting is is that in Luke's Gospel, uh, later on in his life, Jesus explicitly overturns this command. So uh, if you've still got your Bibles open, turn to Luke chapter 22. So Luke chapter 22, verse 35. So Jesus is... Uh, about to be betrayed uh, by Judas uh, and hauled before uh, Pontius Pilate. And it's about the last thing he says to his disciples. Chapter 2, verse 35, Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. This is a great example, I think, of how sometimes reading a part of the Bible without knowing what happens before or after can be thoroughly misleading. If you just come to Matthew chapter 10 and you don't know what happens later in Luke chapter 22, you might think that uh, what Jesus is saying is, okay, what Jesus wants us to do as we go out is to, to divest ourselves of all our personal belongings and to go without anything uh, and just to trust in him to provide what we need. But Jesus makes it clear that the situation has been radically altered later on. It's been radically altered by the onset of persecution. That's clear in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is about to be betrayed and he quotes from Isaiah 53 and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is about to be despised, rejected by the world. He's about to be put to death. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that is going to change everything. 
in the past you could go to one of these towns with the message of the gospel and you could hope for some kind of level of, uh, of amenable reception. You know, that some people might think, oh yeah, we'll put you up. Yeah, come on, stay with us for a bit. But Jesus is saying, no, I, I've come to bring this kind of divining line between all of humanity. People will reject you because they have rejected me because I've been numbered with the transgressors. No, the situation has changed. Now, if you have a bag, take it. If, you, if you've got a cloak, sell it and buy two swords. It's metaphorical. Uh, he's saying it's going to be difficult. It's going to be vicious. But whatever you have, that's enough. Why did Jesus send out the disciples in the first place if they had anything? To prove to them that whatever they did take with them later on in their missionary journey it would be enough. Is a gospel worker still worthy of his keep then? Absolutely. But notably that, that principle is applied later by Paul in the New Testament in terms of support from the church for pastors and other gospel workers. You see, in the church that kind of support can be expected. Yes, a worker is worthy of his keep. But in difficult ministry areas it can't be because the level of opposition and resistance to Jesus has grown. Uh, Evangelists like Paul and the rest of the New Testament don't follow these Matthew 10 principles. Paul spends a large part of his time, a large reason behind some of his letters in fact, is to ask for missionary support, to ask the churches for financial and material support in his mission work. Combining uh, that last principle uh, that gospel ministry ought to be a gift and the current one that a worker is worthy of his keep basically means that the responsibility to financially and materially support gospel workers lies in the hands of the church. How, how How can a person go out, how can an evangelist, a missionary go out, give what they have as a gift and be supported? The answer is that responsibility ends up lying with the church, not with those who receive the missionary. One of the, uh, one of the unexpected uh, side effects of the renewed emphasis uh, in churches is that it has devalued the importance of gospel workers, gospel workers specifically set aside uh, and financed by the church. One of the most uh, significant limiting factors though to our evangelistic efforts uh, as a church is our time. We just don't have the time. We're, a lot of us are busy working, we're busy uh, trying to raise families. We could probably do more than we're already doing but still there's a limit. What's the answer? What's the Bible's answer? The answer is that as churches we ought to invest in gospel workers. We need to pray that God would raise up gospel workers, evangelists, to go out into the harvest. We don't have a problem with that when we send people to the other side of the world, but the idea of doing that locally seems to be a difficult concept for us to grasp. We need to pray, Jesus says, that God would raise up not just other Christians, but raise up gospel workers. And we need to be willing, when God raises them up, 
to support them financially. So we've encountered Jesus' uh, compassion, uh, we've seen the disciples' commission and the disciples' preparation and the last thing that we see is the people's response. In verse 13 to 14, Jesus lists two possible responses to his missionary work, uh, to the missionary work of his disciples. Uh, uh, Talking in terms of the homes that the disciples would go into, Jesus says, if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. He outlines uh, something quite similar in the last few verses of the chapter as well, but he extends it beyond just uh, the immediate kind of mission of these disciples. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one, uh, receives me, receives the one who sent me. And then Jesus goes on to expand into three different illustrations. The key point though in both sections is that how people receive us ultimately shows how they receive Jesus. In verse 41 Jesus goes on to explain that and he says, anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward and anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. It's kind of easy uh, to miss the point here as well if we don't uh, read carefully what Jesus is saying. It's easy to think that the most uh, important point in these verses is receiving a prophet receiving a righteous man or giving a, a cup of cold water to someone or other. In that case, Jesus' message would simply be that it's the compassionate and the friendly who receive Jesus. But crucial to see and uh, to notice here is the reason that people receive the prophet or the righteous man uh, or the little one. The last example makes it uh, the most clear. Jesus doesn't simply say anyone who gives someone else a cup of cold water, but he says anyone who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple. What's the reason? It's because he is my disciple. The person who loves Jesus' disciple, because they are Jesus' disciple, that person loves Jesus as well. In that way, whoever receives Jesus' disciple receives Jesus and they receive the Father as well. And the same goes for the two other examples that Jesus gives. He doesn't say anyone who receives a prophet, but he says anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet. That is, anyone who receives receives you because you're speaking words about Jesus, if they receive you because you're speaking about Christ, then they're receiving Jesus. Or again, anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man. Anyone who receives You, because you're a follower of Jesus. Anyone, because you know Christ, because you're found in him. Anyone who receives you, because of that, receives Jesus. The basic point is is that in rejecting or in accepting us as Jesus' disciples, as Jesus' ambassadors, people ultimately, shockingly perhaps, are rejecting or accepting Jesus. 
whether we're a gospel worker set aside by the church for gospel ministry, whether we're a regular Christian uh, making faltering attempts to share the gospel uh, in our, with our friends in our workplaces. Either way, people's response to us is ultimately also a response to Jesus. That's at the same time the most chilling and the most exciting reality. It's chilling, isn't it? Because it means that every person who rejects you, uh, every person who rejects your Christian life, everyone who rejects, every person who rejects your Christian beliefs, everyone who rejects the words that you try and say about Jesus, every person who does that is not just rejecting you, are they? They're rejecting Jesus. Peter made the point uh, earlier this morning in the prayer meeting, we so often take it personally, don't we? You know, people reject us because of our Christian faith and we think, you know, we think, woe is me. But the reality is it's much more sinister than that, isn't it? People aren't just rejecting you and me, they're rejecting the king of all the earth and the one who made them and who created them. That's a terrible thing to do. That's a, that's a scary thing to do. <laughs> now, if someone rejects you or me, well, that's not scary, is it? Because we, we can't do anything about it. You know, we have no power over them. But if they reject Christ, who can save them? No one. In a sense, Jesus' words are a defence of the very possibility uh, of mission. If people accept you, they accept Jesus as well. That's the other side of the coin. Every person that you go to uh, who receives you because you love Christ, every person who receives your words about Jesus and believes them, every person who does that doesn't just receive you, they receive your words, they receive Jesus Christ himself. People don't have to have Jesus standing in front of them to know Christ, to believe him, it's enough for you and me to stand in front of them, for them to accept Jesus, to hear from us who Jesus is, is enough. For them either to accept Jesus for eternal life or to reject him for eternal judgment. At the end of the day, these events in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples for the very first time, they give us guidance on how we ought to do mission as a church. Not just mission as individuals, but mission as a church. How are we to do it together? Well, Jesus' compassion for the harassed and the helpless and the misguided world ought to urge us to prayer. Prayer not just for gospel success, but for gospel workers to be sent out into the harvest. Gospel workers who give as they have received. Gospel workers who are supported by the church. Gospel workers who are Jesus' ambassadors to our lost world. Gospel workers who, if they are accepted or rejected, stand uh, in the place of Christ in the sense that people accept or reject him through them. But it's prayer not just for gospel workers, but it's prayer also for Christians who live out in the same way these same things in the capacity that God has given us to do it. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which, Lord, it doesn't always challenge us directly in the sense that there's a new thing for us to go out and do on our own. But Lord, it certainly challenges us as a community who are committed to Christ and to following him, not just as a group of individuals, but as a collection of people gathered to promote the gospel in whatever way that we can. Lord, as we look around our own neighbourhood, it's not hard to see that there are lots of people who are harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, we pray that you would raise up workers to be sent out into the harvest field. Lord, we want to thank you for Ben, for the work that he does. Lord, thank you for raising him up. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to support him in that ministry. But Lord, we ask that it would raise up others. The harvest is plentiful, Lord, but the workers are few. And Lord, as you raise those people up, we ask that you would help us to live generously, supporting them because they are worthy of their wages. And Lord, we pray that for each of us as we seek to live out faithful Christian lives in the places that you have called us to live, Lord, we ask that you would help us to live lives which promote the gospel, help us to live such good lives that people might see our good deeds and glorify God. Lord, help us to take the opportunities that we have to uh, give an account for the hope that we have. And Father, we ask that as we do both those things that we will commend the gospel to those who are yet to believe. And Father, we ask that as we do all these things that many would come from east and west to know and to love your great and majestic Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.